Hello, everybody. My name is Reese Garlinski, and this is Yuck History, episode 74 on Oman. The capital of this country is Muscat, and the name Oman seems to come from the ancient historian Ptolemy, who called the people here Omana, which seems to mean friend, protector, or helper. And this actually makes a lot of sense in hindsight, because as we'll see with the history, Oman is very much a helper and a friend to a lot of nations in its region and globally. We'll get into that later. Some other facts is that Oman is somewhat responsible for the creation of the Swahili language. That is because for a time, the empire of Oman did control eastern Africa and was in Mombasa and then spread to the Zanzibar Islands. And during this time, the fusion of Bantu, which was the language of the native people there at the time, fused with the Arabic that was being spoken by the Omani and created the eventual Swahili language. And the final thing is that Omani were some of the best shipbuilders in the world in the 8th century, and it is said that their ships could sail all the way to China, even at this time. And that does play into their history a lot, which we'll get into very soon. So, Oman is another Gulf country we're doing. We most recently did Q8, which was really, really fun. And, um, yeah, so this is going to be a good one. I don't want to dilly-dally, as I always say, much longer. And we're going to get right into it. So, just wanted to say thank you guys so much for listening. And it's going to be a fun one. So one more time, my name is Reese Karlinski. This is Young History. And this is Oman. Let's do this thing. Our origins begin around 3000 BC, which is when archaeological data has shown that at least the first inhabitants were here around this time. We don't know as of right now if there were people here before this, but we do believe the first ones were definitely populating this part of the Gulf around 3000 BC. These people began trading major goods like copper and frankincense at the turn of the era from BC to CE. And frankincense was actually offered to Jesus as one of the gifts he was given at his birth, so this was a very valuable and sought after item. And the people here were very quickly starting to become famous for metalworking and their boat building. Arabs arrived around the 2nd century CE, and they would begin to dominate the region and become the major cultural influences of the land for the time to come. And then Sassanid Persians took over in 224 and ruled until 651. During this time, Persian influence came into the land, and the culture shift was felt almost immediately in the goods and trade, and there started to be a much more common case of open markets being present and Persian craft goods like rugs and other things becoming very popular. And then, halfway through the 600s, the Rashidun Caliphate took over and Islam began to spread. It ended up becoming the majority region by the end of the 7th century, and Oman was specifically Ibadi Islam. This Islam is a part of a more neglected community within the greater Islam religion, and the mountainous landscape of Oman made it very safe for these Ibadi refugees. And this is because... The main two sects are Sunni and Shia, and they already have a lot of conflict with each other, both because of belief, and then since then, in its ancient times where there was a divide, there's a big divide and clash now, because one side is more traditional and the other is not, and this has led to many cultural conflicts and fighting within the religion. But both of them see any other sect of Islam as infidels, and for this they do not like a body overall. So those that are a body do need a place to hide, and they aren't as widely accepted. So Oman acted as that place for a very long time and still does to this day. A leader of the Abadi community within Oman became the first leader of what would be the Imamate of Oman. 
This was established in 751 CE and had its peak during the 800s. It started to falter in the 11th century, and this led to the land being susceptible to takeover. And of course, newer style of Islam, this Abadi version, was now taking root, and practices were being spread throughout Oman, and the culture became very unique. And since they were susceptible to being taken over, the Seljuk Turks did conquer the land in 1037 CE. The Imamate wasn't fully dissolved, but the status of it was changed, and the Seljuk Turks started to seep their both government policies into the land and their culture in. So there are some ancient Turkish relics and Turkish influences that were in this land and can be found today archaeologically. But then in the 1150s, a resistance started to mount, and by 1154, the Nabhani dynasty retook power for the Omani. This began the Nabhani dynasty, and during their time in power, they built massive fortresses to improve the defense of the country, and this started to stimulate the economy as now more people were moving into cities because they felt safer. A maritime culture started to develop in the 1500s, and by the end of the 1500s, it was very clear and prominent that the Omani were great shipbuilders and were great at sailing, and it got them a lot of attention in the region, made them very good at trade. And some of the reed boats that they made were being built so well they could sail all the way to China. And this was done for the sake that Oman didn't have a great standing army, so they couldn't conquer land in the area. But they were really good at traveling, so they could travel far to trade and travel eventually to conquer faraway places. Also in the 1400s, the Portuguese arrived. The first ship arrived in 1504, and they were able to strong arm their way into forming a small settlement here. This was mostly done by sacking the main city of Muscat in 1507. And they did this to protect their interest in the Indian Ocean and Gulf trade. Now, of course, the Portuguese weren't the only Europeans that had interest in the region. Both the Dutch and the English also had a lot of interest here. So they fought the Battle of Hormuz in 1625. Portugal ended up having its trade interest in the region weakened very heavily. And then eventually, Portugal was fully expelled from the region by the Yoruba dynasty. They ended up removing the Portuguese from power in 1650 and got it back to the Yomani. The members of this dynasty would go on to form the Omani Empire in 1696. Now, the Omani Empire didn't stick to fighting within the Arab region. It actively worked to expand the empire because of the fact that it had such good shipbuilders and these reed boats were really strong. They ended up going to the eastern shores of Mozambique in East Africa, Southeast Africa, that is, and they took over the region. The influence that followed would be end up the the influence that followed would end up being the thing that birthed the Swahili language that we talked about earlier because. Arabic-speaking people were now merging with Bantu, and a lot of the religion and everything was seeping together, so a new language formed. During their rule, the Yorubids faced a lot of internal conflict and Portuguese intervention as well. So they fell out of power, and the House of Busaid ended up taking over. The House of Busaid rules as the house in power to this day, and Said bin Sultan of this dynasty was one of the other leaders that led to another period of great glory for Oman. He moved the capital to Stonetown in the Zanzibar Islands, and he made connections with the British because things weren't looking great in Muscat, and it had been raided so frequently so recently that moving the capital of the country away made them more protected. Also under the rule of Bin Sultan was that he made good connections with the British and would establish a long-term relationship that would be very beneficial to both. Upon the death of the Sultan... Possession of Oman and Zanzibar was split evenly between his two sons. One son got Zanzibar and would end up being ruled by the Busaid family all the way until 1964. And his other son ended up helping Oman survive the trade industry shift as slavery was outlawed because of the closeness he held to Britain. 
the British and Omani governments got very close and were in an unspoken kind of alliance because of the strong relationship they had fostered over the next decades that came. And then Said bin Tamir ended up taking power. He inherited the Sultanate of Muscat and Oman, which was the official name of the country at the time. And he was a dogmatic Muslim and encouraged a very conservative Islam in Oman. His rule saw the ban of many modern items like Western clothing and certain uses of electricity to uphold the greater traditional Islam value. And he even banned sunglasses for a time because they were a product of Western industrialization that he did not support. Internal issues started to hit the country as the internal region raided Muscat and there were some smaller civil wars in 1895 and 1920. This is because the interior region has developed over a long time a different culture than the outer coastal region, which is where Muscat is. Because if you live on the internal part of a country that is landlocked compared to the other half that is on the ocean, you wouldn't develop a shipbuilding and sailing culture. You would develop a different one, be that agriculture or be that some kind of nomadism, especially here because it's not like there's a lot of great arable land within this country that's surrounded by desert and mountains. So after these conflicts, the interior region actually negotiated for autonomy, and this was done with the help of the British, who wanted to keep the coastal area protected. And after this, independence came in 1951, when any status under the British was given up fully, and the country of Oman became independent. However, the Sultan allowed the British Petroleum Company to continue exploring the region in search of oil because it had not been yet discovered in Oman, but it had been discovered in the rest of the Gulf region. And this angered some internal regions of Oman because they felt that this foreign country was now getting to take advantage of Oman and was going to take the oil if it found it, which would make them rich and keep money from the Omani. So another rebellion broke out as more rebellion groups started to form, and some of them were supported by Egypt and Saudi Arabia. And this pitted the regionally supported interior of Oman against the sultan-supported coast of Oman in what would be known as the Jebel Akhtar War, which was a civil war fraud from 1954 until 1959. The Sultan and the coast ended up defeating the interior with the help of the British, and during this time, oil was discovered in 1956. But peace wouldn't last long, as the Dofar Rebellion broke out from 1963 to 1976, and another civil war began. This was a communist revolution that challenged the rule of the Sultan and the British influence, and the Marxists in this region, called Dofar, wanted autonomy from the rest of the Sultanate. These Marxists had support from China, the USSR, and other regional socialist groups. And then at this time, the British and Iran both united in power to help defeat the rebels here and help Oman. And of course, that sounds crazy because this day, as of now, I mean, Oman and Britain are on horrible terms because Iran and the West clash really hard over a lot of things. And of course, after this war, this was the start of good relations between Iran and Oman. And a fact from this time is that after this happened, the Sultan Tamir who was in power at the time, was so afraid of another rebellion popping up, he actually put in some crazy laws in place to prevent anyone from creating an uprising, one of them being that he actually banned all conversations lasting more than 15 minutes, which of course is crazy. And this was just one of his ridiculous laws, as we saw earlier. A lot of his policies banned any Western inventions from being used, things like electricity, all sorts of things like that. So Speaking of that, Oman was actually in a really bad place under Tamir. The country had only three schools with a 5% literacy rate. The infant mortality rate was 75%, and only six miles of paved road were in the entire country of Oman. The British didn't like the lack of stability brought by Tamir, even though they were the ones that helped him get power all those years ago. So they helped the 1970 coup d'etat occur. 
This was a bloodless coup d'etat that removed Sultan Tamir from power and saw the more progressive son of the Sultan, Qabus bin Said, take power. Internationally, Oman ended up joining the UN, the Arab League, and more in 1971, and they, and they were one of the founding nations under the Gulf Cooperation Council. So we're going to get to Quabos' rule in a sec, but I just wanted to say internationally, Oman ended up joining the UN and the Arab League in 1971, after this coup happened and stability started to come back, and they helped form the Gulf Cooperation Council in 1981 so that policies around peace, economics, and more could be promoted in the Gulf region. Now, Quabos' rule started with him repealing all the ridiculous laws put forth by his father, and his rule saw him work really close with the British to defeat a lot of rebel uprisings that occurred, and he would use the country's oil wealth to modernize the cities. He made Oman become an observer state of OPEC, but not fully join. He ended up abolishing slavery, making this the second-to-last country to abolish slavery. If you watch a few episodes back, you know that the first is Mauritania. And quality of life here increased greatly. Oman was involved in the Gulf War, but only in the sense that they allowed certain U.S. troops and other Allied troops to be stationed here. And this made things weird with Iran, but it was still okay overall. And then they made treaties with Yemen and Saudi Arabia to establish some border stability. And all this was done under Qabos's rule. Following this, Women in Al-Omani over the age 21 were given the right to vote in 2002. And then the Arab Spring swept through Oman in 2012, and this called for change to the economic system because a lot of people felt that there was a lot of insecurity when it came to jobs and people wanted more jobs. And this led to some protests. One of them ended up getting violent as a protester was killed. Because of this, Cabos felt really, really terrible and wanted this change to occur very quickly. So he ended up creating 50,000 new jobs for his people to work. And his system ended up surviving the oil price drop because now the people were satisfied and wanted to work. So the economy was still being stimulated. And it seemed like these protests here, although mostly nonviolent, worked very well. And big shock hit the entire Gulf region when Cabos did die in 2020 unexpectedly. And since Oman is pretty much an absolute monarchy, him dying meant there'd be a complete change to everything. And since he didn't have a son, his cousin, Haitham bin Tariq, would be the one to inherit power. And since taking over power, Haitham has been very effective. His hardest challenge has been COVID and the giant oil price drop that came from COVID. But he's handled it well, and Oman is still in a great place. He did a lot of things to uphold the rule of Cabos, but he did repeal some things and change some rules so that either in his mind there was improvements to reform or he was being more loyal to Islam, but he's never gone crazy in either direction and everyone sees him as a pretty solid ruler. And that gets us to where we need to talk about the regional positioning of Oman. And this is a huge part of Oman's culture. As I mentioned before, Oman is Ibadi Muslim, and that means it's not Sunni or Shia, which are, of course, the two major sects of Islam and are right next to them. A lot of Sunnis are in Saudi Arabia, and a lot of Shia are in Iran. And because of that, there's a big beef and a lot of clashing between Saudi and Iran. But despite this, Oman has managed to hold really good position and connection with both of them. Even when there was kind of proxy wars going on between Saudi Arabia and Iran, Oman was able to remain very neutral and either benefit both sides of trade or support either side without being too loyal to one or the other. And despite anything that's happened, they still have great relations with both Saudi Arabia and Iran. And this is a little suspicious to both sides, but 
it seems to be very genuine on Oman's part. And this isn't the only thing they've done. It hasn't been just the major powers here. Um, a lot of Kuwait refugees were allowed to come to Oman during the Iraq invasion. And since then, they've done things with their neighbors and more. When Qatar was being blackballed by all the other Arab countries, which was because of them being accused of some anti-terrorist groups, watch our episode on Qatar if you want to know more about that, and they were being cut off, they weren't being treated right, they were being kind of neglected from the rest of the Gulf countries, Oman allowed people to sail around the blockade through Oman or use Oman as a region to still trade out of instead of being completely cut off from the rest of the world the way that a lot of the Gulf powers wanted them to be. And since Yemen has been in its civil war, Oman has always offered to help Yemeni citizens get medical care and some of them able to seek refuge within Oman to avoid the war. Oman is very much in a great position with the rest of the Middle East. It's doing very well. It keeps great relations with all of them. And because of that, they have had an economy start to get much better. But things aren't all sunshine and rainbows. So that pretty much gets us to the present, where Oman has a lot of progressive reform and success within its borders. It isn't fully accepting of some things that are accepted in the West, one of the major ones being homosexuality. But it is one of the most lax Middle Eastern nations when it comes to the topic, the punishment. Sadly, there is still punishment for being caught being homosexual or doing homosexual acts is far lower than it is anywhere else, almost anywhere else in the Gulf region. And since the rule of Cabos started and has ended, the literacy rate is up to 95%. The infant mortality rate is down and the country has industrialized a lot because of what Cabos has done. And now with Haitham in power, things are still maintaining a steady growth rate and things are going pretty but things aren't all great. It is technically the second poorest nation in the Middle East, only beating out Yemen in GDP, and that is because Yemen is actively in a war and being navally blockaded out from the rest of the world, causing an awful humanitarian crisis. But they plan to use the 2040 Oman plan to become diverse in their production of high-tech products and encourage tourism rather than just being based off oil. And that is going to hope to stimulate their economy and diversify it more, and will get them to a better place. And as of right now, Oman has a very high human development rating and a low crime rate, as well as a growing tourism sector of the country, which means it's in a very good place, but there are still issues for them to get through. But overall, Oman is progressive and doing quite well compared to the rest of the Gulf countries. And that gets us to the end where I always like to leave it with a takeaway or a mindset. And with Oman, that is surround yourself with good people and make sure you build great relationships. It's a very kind of mouthy, wordy thing, but I think it makes the most sense with Oman. They are famously the kind of neutral cousin in this region. They don't want to be involved with wars, but they want to support anyone who's going through struggles. They take in refugees. They financially support other nations. They help people travel. They keep good relations and benefit everyone around them. So nobody wants beef with them. And I'm not saying your life is going to be without conflict or that you're not going to have people that try and conflict with you or that you're going to make enemies and stuff. But I say kind of do your best to foster good relationships and surround yourself with people who aren't problematic to you and aren't causing conflict. And then when you can avoid conflict, do. It's not like confrontation is a bad thing because it's not. And it's honestly the best way to solve most things is just directly stating feelings and facts about a situation and then solving it rather than dancing around it or being scared of it. But actual conflict where you're going to make enemies, it can be avoided. Bar fights aren't worth it. Someone bumping you in the street doesn't need to turn into a giant thing. Just let things go and realize that if someone is not acting right around you, you just don't need to foster a relationship with them. And if they are 
in conflict with you or trying to start conflict, there's there's nothing you could do except for just move on and move around it and try and avoid it. I'm not saying don't defend yourself because if someone puts their hands on you or tries to challenge you or makes it impossible for you to get out of a situation, you need to handle it and you should put them in their place. But when possible and as much as you can, just foster good relationships and any relationships that aren't good, cut them off very cordially and move on so that the ones you have in your life are good and keep it so that you are keeping a very short list of enemies because you don't want that to come around and bite you. Because right now, Oban isn't looking over its shoulder thinking, oh, I wonder if Iran's going to find out about this, at least as far as we know, because they know they've done very little bad and they've tried very hard to do good and grow a lot. So with that, that gets us to the end. And I say to you, just be good to your people, foster good relationships, and do your best to make sure things are going well for you and those around you and that you are not a negative influence on people's lives. Just like Oman is not a negative influence on anyone in this region. So that gets us to the end where I just want to say thank you guys so much for being here. Um, Oman was a very interesting one. It's one of those other ones like if you ask someone who isn't into geography or history where it is, what it is, you're not going to get an answer because it's not in the news a lot and things like that. So it's another huge reason I do this episode in the show is just to really teach and learn about this stuff. So it's great for me and I hope in some way it was great for you guys. So thank you all so much for being here and hope you guys have a great day. So my name is Reese Garlinski. This is Young History and that was Oman. Y'all have a good one.